This is the DevSecOps Days Podcast. DevSecOps Days Podcast is supported by OWASP, dedicated to enabling organizations to conceive, develop, acquire, operate, and maintain applications that can be trusted. And with support from the Sonatype Nexus platform, allowing companies to automatically control open source risk. Hi, this is Mark Miller in New York City. I've got Brian Fox in the Boston area and Thomas Hunter in the San Francisco area. And what we want to do is talk about the NPM compromise package, the event stream package that was announced uh, earlier in a couple articles. For background, Brian does have an article on this topic in Forbes, and Thomas has an article on the Intrinsic Medium blog that talks about this. Good morning, guys. Morning. Morning. Brian, I'll start with you. Basically, can you give us a, a little uh, background on yourself for people that don't know you? Sure. I'm a co-founder and CTO at Sonatype and a long-term Apache Maven committer and PMC member. And so, um, you know, Sonatype, we've been in the business of providing the central repository for Maven for 15 years or something like that now. Um, and so s- supply chain attacks, those types of things on open source is definitely something that we... Uh, we stay on top of and, and have been paying attention to for a long time. Great, thanks. Thomas, a little bit about yourself? Well, yeah, I'm a software engineer. I, uh, as you mentioned, I work at Intrinsic. We build a product that protects uh, node applications, and we also provide compatibility with various node modules. And so like on a day-to-day basis, I'm frequently pouring through node source code and looking at popular modules, uh, stuff like that. Thomas, your article, uh, I thought was impressive in the clarity and the simplicity that it had. For those of you that haven't read it, it's called Compromised NPM Package Event Stream. Uh, Thomas, can you give us a little bit about the article? What what were you talking about there? Yeah, so I guess I'd sort of start off with a little bit of history, you know, what exactly happened. Uh, essentially, the ownership of Event Stream, which is a pretty popular node module with about one and a half million downloads, uh, was transferred to a, a malicious user, essentially. And that user uh, created a new package, which was then a subdependency of that package. And that new package uh, snuck in some bad code. Yeah, since we looked at the timeline and uh, you know maybe who was affected, uh, we also uh, the code was encrypted and minified, and so we tore it apart and tried to recreate what it was doing. Brian, when you saw this, we started working on it this morning. It reminded us immediately of a lot of the things you've been talking about for the last six or eight months. Yeah, I mean, we've seen going back all the way to about July of last year, you know, a starting trend of people attacking um, the supply chain, primarily NPM and, and Python. But we've seen we've seen examples of it happen with Gen2 Linux and and Docker Hub in, in some cases. Homebrew as well, right? So it's it's not just limited to to those ecosystems, but we've seen an increase in these attacks trying to get things into the supply chain. It, it's not unlike the uh, super micro, you know, alleged attack that was all the the news what a month two months ago um, from Bloomberg. Um, very similar concept that if you can attack the supply chain and get some malicious code into the repository, and then get it used by you know millions of developers. Um, it has a, a tremendous uh, amplifying effect on your attack surface. And so, you know, this event stream is 
is just another one of those uh, attacks from my perspective. I've been talking about this for about a year now because I, I, after a while, I started to feel like it, Groundhog Day. You know, didn't we just have this conversation? You know, not six weeks ago, kind of thing. And unfortunately, it continues to happen, and, and not enough people are aware of this uh, the the vector generally. And so we've been trying to change that. Thomas, you you're looking at a lot of the the node stuff like this. Are you seeing this more frequently? Was this just bigger than normal? Yeah, we're definitely seeing this happen more frequently. Yeah, this is probably the most interesting uh, event recently. But I had also posted a previous article called "The Dangers of Malicious Modules." You know, something like this had happened a few times to varying degrees in the NPM ecosystem. One of the things too, Thomas, that's happening on the responses to your article is people are talking about lines of responsibility. Who is ultimately responsible here? That is a great question. I don't think I have a good answer, unfortunately. You know, I think sort of the, the current pattern with NPM modules is that you know somebody builds a project usually related to something they're very interested in. You know, I've got several modules myself, but after a while you you sort of lose interest and then it's like, you know, who ultimately who takes ownership of that module? And honestly, I think that's something as a community uh, that we're still uh, sort of figuring out. I believe what happened with EventStream is that NPM itself ultimately uh, took ownership of the package. We need to come up with a better solution as a community for that. Now, Brian, you've been dealing with this for 11, 12 years now. I mean, where is the line of responsibility? Ultimate responsibility lies with the end user, right? I mean, you're you're the ones who are probably getting paid for what you're doing, right? The publishers generally are not getting paid. So you're getting paid to put these open source things into your application. And, and so probably you have some liability in your contracts for your applications you're shipping. Pretty much all these licenses disclaim warranty, user beware kind of thing. So there, the only real, from a legal perspective, answer is that. I think there's culpability in in a bunch of these things. You know, just on on Twitter, not 20 minutes ago, somebody was complaining about the extra steps required that we require before somebody can publish things into Central, saying, "Oh, it's too hard. Why can't it be like NPM and make it easy?" Well, this is a side effect of that. Maybe not this example exactly, but we've seen other ones where you know the credentials were compromised, or certainly left pad where people could just show up and remove stuff from the repo. You know, those are things that were never allowed from the central repository going back longer than these new ecosystems have existed. I think there's some reasons why you see this happen in more ecosystems than others. And so, you know, we've had this effect of we've we've made it easy to publish stuff, we've made it easy to consume stuff. The inevitable outcome of that is we've dumbed down the ecosystem in many cases where we've just made it super easy for anybody to show up and put something out there. The perception generally of the software industry is that open source is maybe more like uh, like BSD, right? Graybeards who are deep in security and really know what they're doing and the guys that created Apache, right? There's lots of good processes at, at these big forges and things like that, that that can help prevent these things. It's not gonna stop them completely, but it helps mitigate the, these types of things. But what's actually happening is you've got, you know, high school, college kids writing things on the weekend, publishing stuff, they're not yet fully aware of the profound implications that happens when they themselves get attacked. And we saw a lot of the compromises earlier this year and last year appeared to have come from stolen credentials or just weak passwords, right? And so that's when I really started talking about this, that, you know, I wanted to get the message out for the consumers to understand that the people producing this stuff are not the 
are not the people writing open source from the, the late 90s and early 2000s. You need to be aware of that generally and to try and speak to the people who are producing this stuff and say, guys, come on, you got to treat treat your own security like millions of users are you know, at risk because frankly, they are. If your laptop credentials get stolen, your key gets stolen, your password gets stolen, um, somebody's going to masquerade as you and, and inject a, a Bitcoin miner or you know um, any of these number of things, a remote code exploit. And then your credibility is mud because nobody can really ever prove if you did it on purpose or if it really was an accident, right? So if you don't care about your end users, at least care about your reputation and take this stuff seriously. And, and that's kind of the message that I've been trying to get out uh, for about a year now. One of the things that Brian just mentioned implicitly was the social engineering that happened on this one. We don't know yet whether the person that took over this project was the one that was actually had malevolent intent here. I mean, how does this get tracked down from this point? Uh, so from what I've seen, it does appear that the user that took over did seem to have the malevolent intent in this case. Oh. Um, the the owner of the actual module with the uh, you know, the bad code, that was actually released by a, uh, uh, I forgot the user's name, had glass in it. Um, but that was released by uh, somebody who had apparently never really released anything before. However, the, the, the new owner of the event stream package um, went ahead and made that package a dependency. And so it doesn't really make sense to make a brand new package with that nobody else is depending on a dependency of an important package. And as far as I can tell, it, it seems pretty, pretty nefarious. Kind of referring to one of the other examples that happened um, in, in that case. I don't, I think this one, it was, it seems pretty cut and dry. Um, but this pattern we saw before where somebody got credentials of, I think it was mail parser, added another dependency to it. Uh, so it was sort of the timeline was they they created this new dependency that had a remote exploit in it and it was new and so nobody used it so then somehow they got the ability to publish a new version of mail parser which was popular added their thing as a as a dependency yeah it was uh, get cookies is the one <clears throat> the malicious ones and then they added it to mail parser and boom they have a huge audience so this this pattern we saw here um is one we've seen before the difference is in this case um they social engineered the takeover of the the project itself, which shows, you know, uh, more of an advanced persistent threat type of thing versus somebody just exploiting uh, something they found, right? Because apparently they gain trust by committing some legit fixes to the code to, to mm -hmm. appear to be a, a real committer and then took it over. Clearly, this was the game plan all around. There was one, uh, when was this? This was back in May of this year. There was a, a Python one, SSH decorator that was stealing private keys. And this one also had sort of similar elements where it was clearly a, a, a persistent threat because the thing they chose to basically hack into was a piece of code whose job was to deal with SSH keys. So if you had any kind of tripwire or something like that watching what was going on, it wouldn't trigger any red flags that this module was manipulating your key. But what it was actually now doing is taking that key and sending it to some, some uh, Eastern European IP address. But in that instance, I think there was, at least the, the last stuff I saw, it was very dubious about who actually did it. The original author said it wasn't me, but there wasn't any obvious way to prove that it wasn't, right? And that's mm -hmm. what I was talking about, that reputation. So, so now, at, at least in my mind, that whole thing is very suspect. I don't think that was exactly the case here. I think that the story supports the narrative that we've been given, but that's not always the case. When your credentials get attacked and somebody does something acting as you, 
um, when you don't have signatures and things like that, you don't, you also don't have, you know, the, um, the way to prove it wasn't you. Yeah. And, uh, this particular case, the, uh, the supposedly malicious author, the GitHub repo was quite bare. You know, they didn't even have a profile photo, uh, three small repositories. And so I don't believe there would be a, you know, sort of a smearing of reputation. No, uh, I don't think so. Yeah. What I found was interesting in, in some of the write-ups and the comments was that um, whoever whoever published that module uh, also took the nefarious code out somewhat later. So it was only in there for a few days. And it, it looked like they were doing that so that the latest version that was kicking around in there looked okay. But anybody that had downloaded and cached it already already had their malicious payload. Again, it's just another one of these um, pieces of evidence that points to, you know, an, an APT type of threat. This isn't just somebody messing around. That also opens up the conversation on timeline, Brian. This has been, from my understanding, I wrote down, uh, it's been known for two months or it's been running for two months. What What's the timeline that all this is happening? I think it was published a couple months ago. I think it's generally been known for about a week. It's just only started to become really more widely known. Yeah, Thomas, when we're talking about that, so it's been known, it's in the wild for the last week and people have known about it. What's taken so long for it to get the visibility that's starting to get now? So the original the original two months that it sat there, I guess there just weren't enough eyes looking at it, honestly. And so the, the thing is the code that was sitting on GitHub differed from the code that was in the package. And so if you actually download the tarball, uh, you would see right. that you know, it contains like a an index.js file, but also contains a minified uh, JS file. And that minified file had some uh, nasty code injected into that. But if you were to actually audit the code by looking at GitHub, uh, you wouldn't have spotted it. Um, I don't know the situation that caused somebody to originally find the issue, though. But as far as the amount of time it took, I believe it was almost a week, maybe four or five days from it going, from an issue being made uh, until uh, NPM rectified the situation. That timeline, I'm I'm not sure about. You know, there were a, there was a holiday, and so I believe that probably made things more complicated. And something like this, and Brian, you mentioned it, so I'll go to you first. What is the end user's responsibility? We can't expect every developer to drill down into every dependency when they're using a module. Unfortunately, within some of those ecosystems, you know, the modules are so much smaller, which means you end up with that many more. It becomes impossible. You know, what, what we're seeing in the industry is even just the simple best practices of being prepared for the inevitable don't happen. You know, the analogy that I like to use is that we all as consumers expect that the, our manufacturers have complete bill of materials, whether it's our car or the planes we fly in or the food that we eat, that it is traceable when something happens. Not if, when, not if something happens, when something happens, they can find out where it's affected and do a diligent type of recall. Unfortunately, most companies don't even have that level of, of diligence for the very same software running in those pieces of hardware that they take such care to keep track of the physical pieces. I'm talking about the financial markets, the air traffic control, the planes, all these kinds of things. And so, you know, it starts with that, being able to have a complete bill of materials of what's going into your applications and understanding, you know, not just having a list somewhere or in a developer's head, but being able to quickly do a query and understand, have we used this version since it was published, right? Because in this case, the, the nefarious one is now gone. So you need to be able to look back, not just on what you have now, but what were you running in the last two months? 
um, because you might have left behind a minor or something like that is what we saw in some of these other cases. And so being able to quickly respond, understand and triage if you're affected, where you're affected and do something about it is unfortunately not the norm. Um, and so people need to get to that point. It, it sort of begs another question, how do you prevent these things up front? That's more of an ecosystem community kind of thing. I think some of the stuff that um, Thomas, you guys are doing that try to help help you make the applications themselves more resilient, right? So it's a it's a, definitely a defense in depth type of approach. But frankly, if you can't even tell me, are are we using this module? Have we ever used this module and which apps? You've got no chance. And that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, I think there's a few attempts to to uh, you know make the NPM ecosystem more secure. You know, there's all these tools that are always performing static analysis on the actual code, um, but unfortunately that can't always catch these issues. And a lot of times, you know, they're finding things that aren't necessarily issues as well. So it can get a little noisy. You know, the NSP project, which is recently essentially merged into NPM Incorporated, they have like a database of known bad packages that people can report. Uh, but unfortunately that approach is a bit more reactive. It's like, um, it's not until an issue is actually discovered and made public um, really that, that you're able to get protected from that. And of course, once your application is actually running in production, using a malicious package, you know, you're not actively made safe by that. You know, my answer is a little bit biased, of course, but you know, really uh, the intrinsic project or product that we have is able to uh, you know, lock down your application, what it's able to do at runtime. As you mentioned, intrinsic to Thomas, what is the notification process? Let's say that you guys did find this. How are you notifying the community that you found this thing? We don't really crawl packages to look for vulnerabilities. We do crawl packages a lot to look for, you know, perhaps compatibility with our product or how can we create a policy around it. And so that requires the like, intimate knowledge of the actual module. And so we do frequently find security vulnerabilities in these modules, and then we will uh, submit a PR uh, to the maintainer to uh, fix such an issue. Um, but really, we since we run at runtime, you know, your application will essentially generate an error when it attempts, for example, contact this this rogue IP address that this application that this module is doing. You know, we would have just prevented that at runtime, and then you'd receive a message. Uh, Brian, same thing to you. How is your team notifying not just clients but the public in general and your clients as to something that's been found? There's multiple different layers, right? We also run the OSS Index. Uh, website which has information is integrated into a lot of free tools we have integrations with our nexus repository we also have a free uh, vulnerability scanner on the website to do assessment and then of course our enterprise products allow companies to build the bill of materials definitively from the bottoms up so they have that big list that i was talking about and then you know they can marry that with the data that we provide to do automated controls so you can you know, you can block developers from starting to use a known vulnerable thing or or um, stop it from being released or, you know, a whole myriad of, of different possibilities. But we're generally about trying to provide those automated contextual controls so that we can take this information and make it actionable and relevant within the development environment. And so our data research and kind of that stuff that happens behind the scenes is what we do to drive all of that, right? So that's why, you know, we're, we're sort of looking at this from two perspectives. We're looking at how do we make central, more resilient for these types of things for the community in general. But then as it applies to all of the ecosystems, not just Java, we have to be aware of these things because that's what our customers are, are using us. One of the interesting things for me on this one is the attack was very specific. 
in essence, as an overall ecosystem and community, it has relatively low impact because of what it was trying to do. From my understanding of it, is that if there wasn't a miner within the system it was attacking, nothing would happen. It's not like they did something else. But it does open up the possibility, Thomas, that something very nefarious could have been placed here and people wouldn't have known for a while. Yeah, and that, that's why I've been talking about it for so long. We haven't had the big one yet. You know, certainly if your SSH key got compromised, you might have the big one and we don't know about it. But in terms of like these exploits, some of them were typo squats, some of them were inserting miners, so they were stealing CPU, right? I mean, somebody's paying that. Um, some of them were remote code exploits, but not a lot of them. The pattern is the thing that is really concerning to me, that new trend of people actively doing this and honing the craft of how do I, how do I you know, add a new one to the belt? How do I take over an existing project without having to steal their credentials, show up and commit a little bit, and then ask to get privileges? That's mm -hmm. also the definition for how you become a committer on any open source project. These trends are the things that are scary. And if you just look at it as they're building their, their moves, at some point, the big payload is going to come. That's why we're talking about it, to try and wait, raise awareness so more people can be, be prepared for when that happens. This is the DevSecOps Days podcast. DevSecOps Days podcast is supported by OWASP dedicated to enabling organizations to conceive, develop, acquire, operate, and maintain applications that can be trusted. And with support from the Sonatype Nexus platform, allowing companies to automatically control open source risk.